0: Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening, and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey, folks! Welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student, doctoral candidate, pre-doctoral intern co-host, Brandon <laughs> Saxon. I'm going to note that out of here, <laughs> just so you know.
1: And your co-host, associate professor person, Katie Gordon. I added an extra title person. I like that. Because that a, wasn't clear, right?
0: I like that a lot. How are you doing tonight, Katie?
1: I'm doing pretty well. There have been there has been so much in the news. And um, I feel like when we're able to do an episode that addresses some of the psychological claims that have been made mm-hmm. in the news, that that's a great opportunity for me to learn mm-hmm. about science in areas that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Today we'll be talking about memory, as well as share that kind of stuff with our listeners. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about today's guest. How about you?
0: Uh, yeah, the exact same, of course. it's It feels like we're in this almost warp speed time of news. And... I, have a, I think about this a lot and I wonder about if I'm conflating just me being more aware of the news or if the news is actually moving faster. Maybe it's a mixture of both. But yeah, it's definitely a time when there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and in our country, and it is nice to use our little podcast as a vehicle through which we can talk about some of the things that are happening under kind of that umbrella of psychology.
1: Yes, exactly. So the kind of background for this episode is that our guest today is Jonathan Corbin, Dr. Jonathan Corbin. how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well
1: so so Jonathan, I know from we follow each other on Twitter, and i he um I know that he has expertise in memory, and so I had seen a news story regarding regarding Dr. Ford's allegation about Brett Kavanaugh, who's currently. Uh, under consideration to be, for appointment as a Supreme Court justice, and Dr. Ford discussed uh, an allegation of of assu- of sexual assault mm-hmm. that happened when she was 15 years old, and allegedly um, when Kavanaugh was 17 years old. And so the the news story was an interview asking a clinical psychologist about memory, trauma, emotion, and things related to that. And I really appreciated Jonathan's. Responses, I thought they were really thoughtful and informative. And so excited to hear more from him about this. And I do want to say we're going to be focused on memory, but I I think that the discussion surrounding this incident, I want to acknowledge, I think it's really hard to hear some of the comments that people are making in general about sexual assault survivors and about, you know, asking questions about why someone wouldn't have reported earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think there are valuable discussions and voices kind of pushing against some of the negative and misconceptions about sexual assault survivors and and situations like that. But it's a hard time. So I just want to say to our listeners out there that, um, you know, I'm thinking about people who are affected by that right now. And part of the motivation really to do this episode is to get more accurate information out there. So, without further ado, I'll introduce Jonathan formally. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Psychology at the University of Richmond currently. He has a Ph.D. in developmental psychology from Cornell University. He describes himself as a decision scientist, memory nerd, and open science advocate. And while we'll talk mostly about memory, I thought I'd open up by first asking Jonathan about a, I believe it's a Latin phrase on his Twitter profile that says, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Nemo Mortalium Omnibus horse Sepet. Did I say that anywhere near how it's supposed to be pronounced? <laughs>
2: you know, um, <laughs> I actually don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't know uh, Latin very well. I'm trying to remember where this, uh, where this came from and why it kind of... Uh, Boy, well, it got me enough to put it on my, my Twitter. <laughs> it's something I read, but it's not something uh, I ever heard pronounced in, in real life. But it until generally, now. <laughs> until now, yeah. You have, you have introduced me to how to say that. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, no, uh, essentially it just kind of means uh, no mortal is wise at all times. Uh, so essentially we all make mistakes. <laughs> um, and, and I just liked it. It was just a reminder that, you know. As as hard as we try, we're all going to make mistakes and that's okay.
1: I really like that. Yeah, I think that's a great...
2: On a Twitter profile because
0: it just seems perfectly relevant to Twitter. Oh, absolutely.
1: Definitely. I agree with you about that.
0: Well, maybe to start things off, this is maybe kind of a broad question or maybe a vague question, but there's been a lot of discussion as Katie kind of already mentioned in the media right now, just kind of about memory and kind of how, how memory of events can change over time or, and a lot of things kind of about that. And I'm just wondering overall, what's been your response as an expert in this area to some of the media coverage? Um, Yeah, it's really interesting to see
2: what happens with events like this, with the media. It seems like everyone uh, scrambles to, to become a memory expert at, yeah, of some sort. Uh, and you see a lot of interviews and you see a, a lot of actually interesting questions that are being asked that there, there are, is research being done trying to investigate questions like this. Um, and, you know, I think it's really, it's kind of a really difficult challenge to boil all that down into a, an article. So mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of respect for any journalists who are trying to kind of now that this issue is so important, trying to boil all this down because I, I don't envy that, envy that task. Um, so you know, I like to think of it as like an opportunity. Now everyone's kind of thinking in terms of you know, well, how does memory work, and kind of starting to ask questions about, well, how does emotion affect our memories, and how does what happens over time with our memories, and so it's a good time to kind of uh, hopefully inform people about uh, those facts. Um, That being said, it's really just like an awful context, you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's what I imagine uh, when researchers who do research on, you know, impacts of school shootings on people, like no one ever wants to have to talk about that, particularly in that context, it's just really a, not, never a great backdrop for that sort of thing, um, I wish we got more opportunities to talk about these things when it wasn't tragic, um, Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, that's, that's somewhat sad. But I also see, you know, it's also a great time for misinformation to come up, especially when people are motivated uh, to do so. Because, you know, the, memory, the literature on memory is complicated, and there's a lot of uh, disputes still out there, which makes it easy for someone who might just be jumping in with a particular point of view to kind of grab one element of that. You know, gestalt of that whole literature and say hey see look this person says X this is how memory works therefore this person must be lying or mm-hmm. therefore this person must have a unassailable memory either way uh, that that's another kind of issue that can happen
0: yeah sure
1: yeah so um I, I think I mean as someone who studies, suicide and does suicide research I think I know what you mean that it's often the opportunities to discuss it are after some severe tragedy has happened but um, what you said especially I think is that people one of the things that can be difficult is that it is these are complex areas of research and if people have particular positions that they're pushing they might highlight or cherry pick certain areas over others and so as you've seen some of this media coverage what kind of exaggerated claims have you seen where it seems like someone will take something that has like a kernel of truth and maximize it, maybe perhaps to make their point stronger?
2: Right. I've So I've seen, I can't remember the source of all these claims, so I'm not going to bother uh, doing that, but I, I've definitely seen one uh, person event, then their memory is going to be, should be perfect. No one would forget anything about a tragic event. Uh, And there's some, they're gleaning that from some literature that suggests that um, when it comes to unique, emotionally arousing, negatively valenced events, people tend to have uh, somewhat better memory for those events, particularly for like details uh, that they're attending to in those events. These events are distinctive, and distinctiveness tends to be related to better memory for items and uh, doing kind of basic memory tests. Um, certainly, you can imagine trying to recall what your day was like on September 11th last year versus trying to remember what your day was like on September 11th, 2001. And I'm betting you probably have quite a few more vivid memories of uh, 2001 than you do of last year. Um obviously depending on who you are, but that's probably generally t- true. And so there's some truth to that idea that kind of these distinctive, highly emotional events are going to be burned into your memory a little bit uh, more, but it's definitely not the case that one should remember every detail of these sorts of events. Uh, you know, I've seen kind of the, not the complete reverse, but in the when it comes to Dr. Ford's experience, people saying, well, she somehow was able to remember this one event but couldn't remember, you know, the time, exact time that it happened or maybe exactly where she was. And uh, as kind of a saying, well, you know, nothing must be reliable in her memory because she couldn't remember these other things. So how could this one thing that she remembers be true? it's like, well, that's essentially, that's pretty normal. Um, It's pretty run-of-the-mill as far as uh, memory goes. Uh, Memory is not a video camera <laughs> you can't just rewind the tape and look back at what happened uh probably on this podcast most listeners on here that's completely obvious to them um but you tend to hear false memory researchers repeating that line uh because there's a study i think back in 2011 that, uh, dan simons and christopher Shavers, i think i've never actually heard his name pronounced i'm back in the latin issue here <laughs> Um, show that about 60% of people agree with the statement, human memory works like a video camera. So you'll hear a lot of false memory researchers saying, no, no it, it doesn't. Um, I also realize for students today saying you can't just rewind the tape is probably it doesn't make any sense to them. <laughs> I'll, I'll take my example. But uh, nevertheless, you know memories are traces of events, things that you can access, you know, access bit, bits and pieces of something that happened. So, in the case of Dr. Ford, it's completely possible that uh, she has a uh, fairly good memory in terms of the events that happened during the alleged assault, but everything kind of surrounding that is vague. That's not uh, incompatible with the research right now.
1: Okay, I appreciate you saying that, and it made me think a little bit about the idea. Is some of are some of these ideas related to like flashbulb memories or? Um, where if it's a, such a significant event, it's just kind of vivid and will stay that way over time?
2: Yeah, um, I think that's probably what most people are keying into is flashbulb memories. I think that tends to be something that's covered in a lot of intro psych courses. And it's an idea that's still getting around. Um, but when it comes to that literature, there's been some work since that has somewhat debunked that idea in the sense that you have this very vivid, detailed memory. Uh, of that event in the sense of like a flashbulb means it's frozen in time. Um, There's a study, I think, done after September 11th, actually, where they uh, asked people about the details of their day and did a longitudinal method where they asked them years later and kind of kept track. And what they found was that people tend to remember kind of the general gist of what happened, you know, the events that occurred as they occurred. People recalled very well, how many planes were involved, where they were at the time. Uh, But the details of those events uh, as the years went by, I think after three years they were down to like 57% accuracy or somewhere in the 50s um, in terms of accurately remembering all the details like who first told you or uh, other details like that. I mean, I think George W. Bush pretty infamously Uh, Misremembered seeing the plane hit the second tower when it happened. Uh, When in actuality, he didn't at the time. He certainly saw it uh, after. I'm sure he saw it on the news, and so you got a kind of misinformation effect going. Misremembering maybe seeing it later for actually seeing it when it happened. Uh, So it's you know slightly more complicated.
0: I'm wondering, I know we run into this a little bit, just kind of trying to disentangle maybe academic and clinical terms versus legal terms. And I'm wondering, in kind of your coverage of of Dr. Ford and, and the allegations, have you run into that at all in terms of memory and, and the differences in how we think about memory in kind of the legal domain versus the kind of um, everyday context or the clinical context? Oh, most... Most definitely. So
2: in the legal domain, when we think about memory, uh, we're really concerned with the details. Uh, so when you're interviewing an eyewitness, or maybe you're putting an eyewitness on the stand, when you're asking them questions, you really want them to be a video recorder as much as they can be. Uh, essentially, you want them just the facts as they perceive them, and that's all. You don't want any inferences about what they what they experienced, right? Uh, any inference to be made is to be made by the trier of fact or the jury, the people who are deciding whether or not you know the person's guilty, who's lying, who may not be lying. That's all the jury's domain. Um, so when you're interviewing somebody in the legal domain, you're really hoping to get like sensory detail, right? So when you're asking somebody about, oh, did he have a tattoo? You're really hoping to get yes, he got a tattoo as on the top left of his shoulder it was a black and white tattoo of a you know skull or something like that right that's really good legal uh, it's really good memory in the legal sense um, in the everyday sense we don't really care as much about that um, we just want to know you know when you ask how your day was we're not asking you to describe your day in uh, verbatim detail all the way through or just want to know, oh yeah, I had a good lunch and I went here. And if some of the details are wrong yeah, of what you experience right, uh, that's fine. That's enough. Uh, so, so these are kind of definitely different standards for thinking about uh, what types of memory we want to elicit when we're in a legal domain versus maybe an everyday domain. In clinical, um, which maybe y'all might, y'all probably have much more insight into this, but when it comes to things like uh, you know, allegations of assault or abuse or something like that, where memory is really important and you, you really hope that you can get a detailed account in the legal domain, I feel like in the clinical domain, you know, your um, motivation isn't necessarily to have the most vivid account of what happened. You're hoping to help this person deal with whatever it is that they're dealing with. So whether their memory is perfectly accurate or maybe there's some issues in terms of false memory or not quite remembering everything exactly as it happened, you just want to make sure this person is going to be able to function and feel better and be a happy person in society. So you know, when it comes to some victims, whether or not they're misremembering uh, and you know, whether or not you can tell whether a memory is true or false, that's less important, I, I at least think in that sense of like, my goal is to make sure that, you know, you're living a happy, healthy life.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I've worked with both. Um, I, when I was in graduate school, I did some therapy with with adolescents who were convicted of sexual offenses and that was a legal setting. And so often we were comparing kind of their accounts to what police records or other available evidence show to try to get a clearer picture versus when i've done clinical work with individuals who have experienced uh reported experiencing sexual assault or something like that uh you know like you said it's more about understanding what they recall about the experience and finding the most meaningful way to help them through their struggles and it's interesting in in, in this case one of the pieces of evidence that has been brought forward is that dr ford in her own therapy talked about this incident and the therapist has notes about it and so you know but clearly oops are you still there sometimes cut out in the middle okay so her her goal for that was obviously uh, different than what's going to happen than what happened actually um in the current context, right? There there are different goals. And so one thing that you had mentioned when I asked you about your impressions of that news story is that there are particular ways of asking questions about memories and trying to understand them that are preferable to others. And in this setting, it's hard to imagine the ideal way happening because of the nature of the situation. And so I was wondering for someone qualified in the ideal situation, trying to understand what Dr. Ford's allegations are, what kind of approach might be the ideal to ask about those memories? Are there certain ways of asking things that seem to gather more accurate information than others?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, In the case of Dr. Ford, yeah, I definitely will, would want to point out, uh, you know, I don't think a Senate panel full of politicians who already made up their minds and have <laughs> motivations that go far beyond trying to determine the truth make for a really great uh, process. <laughs> um, and the Republicans have hired a prosecutor, I think, um, who does specialize in sex crimes. To be the person asking it, I think that's right. Um, and even that's really not ideal, particularly given this—the details of this litigation. Um, the real difficulty with regard to Dr. Ford's situation is that it was 35 years ago, um, and kind of the type of memory for details um, they might be able to get out of a, um, with an interview that, you know, maybe you interview in a few days after the event or pretty soon after the event, Those details are largely gone. I'm not saying details are completely gone. People can remember details of things for a very, very long amount of time, but a lot of that is, is just not going to be accessible. And so she's going to be left with kind of overall uh, for the gist of the event. Um, I guess I, I should be clear. When I say the gist of event, I'm referring to kind of a type of memory trace um, that you have access to, as opposed to um, kind of surface detail of what that event, surface details of that event that you kind of kind of see in your mind's eye or hear in your mind's ear. Um, so, in terms of getting those really precise memories, that's not going to be quite as possible. Uh, in this case so you know the best approach that I would I would take here uh, first of all obviously not be having someone um, ask for questions in front of a panel of people who are very very biased because they can ask kind of leading questions they can make suggestions that you know might make memory worse in that case it would be much preferable to kind of have an investigation that allows people who are professionals to interview her again. You generally want to ask open-ended questions of her where she can just recount what she remembers without you interfering with suggestions asking, you know, well, was this person over there? or Maybe this person was here. Things like that can lead to false memories. Uh, those types of suggestions can make more inferences into what happened to them, uh, Obviously, depending on the situation, you're going to have to ask some questions that don't just amount to tell me what happened, uh, but you want to be really how you're asking. and You want to find about uh, any amount of suggestion if you can. Um, so in her case, the best thing to do, I think, would, would be to have an actual investigation where they don't just interview her, but they also interview people who she's told, um, you noted that her therapist has notes she wanted to talk uh, to the therapist if you could to get the therapist's memory for the events and get the therapists notes what well maybe there's another friend in 2013 that knew um, and the more evidence that you can get that corroborates what she uh, is alleging now uh, the more confident you can be in kind of the trueness of that of that memory if that makes sense
1: thank you for describing the the types of ways that of asking questions that would, or gathering information that would help to get at kind of the truth or maximize the possibility to understand the best of the truth of a situation that happened 35 years ago. I was wondering, as you were saying that, if some of that is based on the research that Loftus did looking at how framing of questions, even minor changes, can influence the way that people's memories are recalled.
2: Oh, absolutely., um, prominently she's uh, certainly one of the probably one of the most important psychologists in the field, um, and she's done a whole lot of work uh, taking research into memory and then translating that into something that's relevant to the law and now you know, actually being used in the legal domain more and more, helping people understand how memory can be faulty and certain. Uh, situations. So, yeah, she uh, pioneered what's known as the misinformation effect, um, and that's essentially, I think the classic demonstration uh, was with a stop sign, a picture of a car stopped at a stop sign, and then later on she showed in people the picture again, but instead of a stop sign, it was a yield sign, um, and then she tested people's memories uh, at a later date, and people would misremember the stop sign for the yield sign. And forget the source of the information and whereas that kind of sounds like a silly example maybe um she went on to apply that to kind of much more <laughs> realistic and relevant circumstances where you know you could have uh, people misremembering being lost in a mall at a certain point in their lives uh, when you told them a story about them being lost in the mall they'd say oh yeah i remember that happening when very clearly they hadn't given interviews with their parents um and that's kind of forged a uh, whole literature on you know how you should be how you should interview people and what you should avoid doing uh, when you're interviewing both uh, adults and children. I think she she tended to when she describes a memory. I think she describes it as a Wikipedia page
1: because
2: uh, it can be updated every time it's accessed. <laughs> so Every time you access your memory, you can change a few things or if you add a bit more information in there. You can. You can do that, um, which is a pretty, pretty good metaphor. It's really hard to think of good metaphors for memory. I think I'd go one step further, maybe call it a Google search, because <laughs> um, what you get back depends kind of on what you're searching for. <laughs> and the further down on the list you get, the less reliable your hits are. <laughs> um, but, yeah, certainly she uh, was, has been a pioneer in her work still. Is, is really incredible in this domain and, and helping people understand how to ask witnesses questions to elicit kind of the least most likely elicit accurate memories or at least avoid eliciting false memories.
0: Sure. So related to Loftus's work, I know some of our listeners were tweeting at us and they were kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the state of the science of repressed memories. So I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts or what, what kind of do you have to share for folks who are curious about repressed memories?
2: Um, sure. So I do want to preface, I'm not a complete expert in, in this area. So, you know, if I'm wrong, feel free to yell at me. Uh, <laughs> but to my current level of knowledge, I don't think there's a lot of research that has a lot of strong support for repressed memory. Um, as far as I know, so... Repression in like a Freudian sense of you kind of your unconscious burying down a memory that you're unaware of, so kind of protecting you from a really bad memory by just burying it and you being unaware that that happened. That's kind of my understanding of repression. Um, and I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence to suggest that that is a thing. I, I don't want you know. There's always the possibility that somebody's going to design a really great study and or do some really great research and it turns out that there are examples of this. Um, but at the moment, there's not a whole lot of support. Um, I would contrast that with suppression of memories. Uh, So instead of repression, but suppression, there is research out there to suggest that people are able to kind of suppress, um, their memory to a certain extent. And a lot of these studies, they'll just give people word lists and say, okay, I want you to remember this one, so study it. And they'll give somebody another word list after that and say, you know, try really hard to forget that list you just studied. <laughs> you know, just don't remember it very well. Um, and then maybe they'll give them a surprise memory task and they'll compare a list that um, they were asked not to suppress with a list that they were asked to suppress. And people are somewhat able to uh, do worse <laughs> in, for the list that they were asked to suppress. So that that has a little more research to back it up um but it is worth noting uh it's really hard to study something like repression in a laboratory uh, it's really hard to create the circumstances of repression uh, you know something where you'd have to uh, insert a memory and then have them unconsciously forget about it and then 70 years later or 40 years later have it pop back up. That that would be a really hard thing to study. So I don't I don't want to go as far to say like it's not a possibility that that could happen, but I would say there's not really a strong literature to my knowledge for that.
1: Okay, hey, and that that's you know, and one thing we should point out, I think that's very helpful as we talk about memory. In Doctor Ford's case, there wasn't any claim of repressed memory, as we all know. But just want to be clear to our listeners that that's that. People asked about that kind of on the topic of memory. For her, per her report, this is something she has remembered since it happened, which is more typical of the accounts that, that people say that they do remember. So before we move on to a couple of things that are less related to the allegations against Kavanaugh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that you've responded to, or claims, or misconceptions that you've seen specific to Doctor Ford's allegations or media coverage of that—that that we didn't talk about yet—that we should make sure to talk about before changing topics.
2: Um, I, I would—I think I would like to clarify what what a false memory is, and kind of what we're talking about when we talk about memory. Like at the question of, like, are memories built the same way? Are there different kinds of memory? or at least different ways to conceptualize memories. Um, so, so when I say false memory, I'm not referring to a mental process. I'm referring to just the trueness of the memory given a particular standard. Um, and so, like, for example, if I went to a baseball game, let's say I had a hamburger and a Coke while I was at a baseball game, two months later I'm recalling that game and I remember eating a hot dog and having a Dr. Pepper. So in one sense I'm I'm wrong, right? That's a false memory. I had a hamburger and a Coke. I didn't have a hot dog and Dr Pepper. So you're you know let's say you're interrogating me and you're like, ah, he's a liar. Well, in some sense that's a false memory. In another sense I'm not wrong. I had ballpark food, right? I I ate food that you have at baseball games, and both hamburgers and hot dogs they fit into that category. So it is worth noting. Uh, it's certainly possible. For one, you know whether a memory is false or true kind of depends on the standard that you have for that memory, um, and it's also worth noting that they're not the same thing as kind of underlying processes that generate those memories. Uh, so you know, one way to conceptualize memory for an event is. Uh, to think in terms of the, the clear recollection for the events, um, which is driven by memory for the surface details of the event. I clearly remember ordering a hamburger. I can see it happening in my mind. I definitely didn't have a hot dog because I can see that hamburger clear as day, versus the memory for kind of the overall gist of that event, the overall kind of um, schema for what that event was. So in terms of semantic categories, I ate some ballpark food. That's a perfectly acceptable way of capturing that event. Um, however, you know, only retrieving that semantic information, I had ballpark food, can lead to, you know, what's considered a false memory. You know, it could be a hot dog, it could be a hamburger, both of those are ballpark foods. So, so does, does that, I, I hope that helps kind of conceptualize, because I think when people talk about true and false memories, they start to think of them in terms of, like, something happening in your brain, like a false memory is, of a type of memory trace, as opposed to kind of a standard we're setting for the level of detail of that memory.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. I'm kind of uh, making a note for of that that analogy so that I can use that future if I'm teaching about this stuff. That's that's really helpful, and it, it made me think too to ask you about eyewitness testimony or memories. Because another thing that has come up with this allegation is the idea you mentioned, you know, asking other people that might be present to kind of either corroborate or or not corroborate or contradict the account. And how good in general is eyewitness testimony? I think in depictions, fictional depictions, it's often viewed as like the gold standard of that. If you can have someone say, I saw that happen, then it definitely happened. But what does the science say about that?
2: Um, well, generally, I, I would I would give you the standard psychologist answer and say it depends. But um, in terms of comparing it to the stereotype for the level of accuracy that eyewitness testimony has, it's it's definitely not as good as as most people think it is, and it's certainly not as um, good as most jurors think it is. Um, generally, even now, jurors take eyewitness testimony as like you said, as a gold standard, you know, they saw it happen, they're reporting that that's what they saw, therefore it must be what happened. Um, and again, going back to uh, Elizabeth Loftus's work on misinformation, as well as, you know, just a host of other researchers like uh, Steve Cece and uh, Chuck Brainerd and just a bunch of people who've shown that's not necessarily the case. Their eyewitness memory is definitely not as accurate as, as people would think, especially over time. Um, so when it comes to eyewitness memory, you really want to get in there as soon as you can after the event. You want to have them questioned as soon as you can. You want to be very careful with how you ask them. You generally want to say, what did you see, <laughs> and stop it there if you can with your questioning. Um, obviously, you're going to have to ask more specific questions, but you generally want to start with a very open-ended approach. Um, say what, what is it that you saw um, and in the case of eyewitness maybe you're doing a lineup or a photo spread or something where you're actually having to identify someone um, you know you, you want to have multiple distractor people you know that you can judge against and you generally want to ask how confident they are the first time around um, so you know is it this person that you saw and if they say yes well how confident are you like zero to one hundred because this is kind of a new development, I guess, in eyewitness research. But confidence is pretty well related to accuracy, provided the eyewitness, um, the person who's uh, questioning or doing the lineup or the photo spread, is doing everything correctly. Um, so people say, I'm 99% sure that was the guy. The first time around when you ask the question, provided you did all the other steps perfectly is a pretty good indicator of, of whether or not uh, that's true uh, unfortunately if you ask them again and again usually i think in tv shows you see they're in court you know probably, which is probably three months later and they say you know is this the person you saw that day and they point at them and they say are you sure and they say how confident they are um that's not going to be a reliable time to ask them how confident they were or ask them if they, if they saw the person, is obviously not going to be as reliable as um, if you can do that sooner rather than later.
1: That's that's interesting I because I have seen in other domains that confidence sometimes is not correlated or can be inversely correlated with accuracy. So that's good to know. And also the idea that if it's following a particular protocol, that that matters too. Somewhat related, I guess, to context and memories, one thing I wanted to ask, we've kind of talked about how the passage of time can affect memories. Are there particular ideas about how trauma might affect memories beyond the things that we've talked about, the idea that it's more salient or the idea that people might suppress certain information about it? Does it seem like it comes down to people react to trauma in a variety of different ways. And it's hard to just say memory during trauma is this one type of thing.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, it's worth taking into account, you know, when, when memory researchers tend to say memory is one way or the other, they are generally talking about averages and probabilistic data. Um, You know, we, especially when we're thinking about the legal domain, we have what's called the group-to-individual problem, um, which is all our data is based on group averages, which means there's variability around those averages, which means some people might be remembering really, really well, like stupendous memory, where some people are not going to be remembering well at all, and everywhere in between. And then we take the average and we say, yeah, memory is generally like this in this situation. So it's, it's definitely worth noting, especially with something like Dr. Ford, when you're hearing a lot of people talking about um, how trauma might affect memory, you know, does negative emotion make memory stronger or does it make people uh, less likely to remember details or the surrounding events? Um, A memory researcher is only going to be able to tell you, well, generally speaking, this is how memory works. Um, They're not going to be able to tell you, oh, well, given what, we heard from Dr. Ford, or whatever other situation, we know this is true and this is not true. That's just not possible. That's not something uh, that we can do. <laughs> so certainly, I don't, I don't know about individual differences in how you know different people might react to traumatic events or negative uh, when they're maybe negatively aroused or there's something of a negative valence I don't really know how that works I don't know the individual differences literature on that I'd imagine that's that's a pretty tricky thing to study
1: yeah because I could imagine it has to do with the person but also the things having to do with the situation I think the overall point that you're making that it's hard to generalize based on averages to an individual case is a really important one to keep in mind
0: yeah uh, maybe just shifting gears a little bit, um, just to get, you know, we've talked about a lot of serious and important stuff, maybe shift a little bit into the kind of geeky or pop culture stuff. Are there any, um, realistic depictions of amnesia and fictional works? This was something that was, um, tweeted to us from one of our followers.
2: Yeah. I was really wrecking my brain trying to think of <laughs> what would be a really like solid depiction of. A memory, you know, I guess Memento is the first thing that pops into my head where the guy's, um, he's, mm-hmm. like, writing down things and then forgets everything again, mm-hmm. has to remember, or I guess 50 First Dates is another one,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, dealing you know, with uh, memory issues, um, but in terms of, like, false memory or these, these types of issues, I really don't know. I, I should probably look into that for, for class, so I'd be better prepared for that question. <laughs> It's a tricky one.
1: It It is. It seems because it seems like, well, I taught, actually, I was teaching about um, dissociative states in my abnormal psychology class this week. And we were talking about fugue states and how it's and how that's related to dissociative amnesia. And it seems like one of the tricky things with this is it's pretty rare. So it's hard to have good, solid research on these things, but they're depicted quite a bit in movies or TV shows because it's a really fascinating premise. So it's kind of like this mismatch or something like that.
2: Yeah, definitely. I remember. Um, it's all all the most, like, I guess, fascinating problems when, it, you know, things that writers would love to write about or all the things that seem to be the most difficult to study and understand um, in an experimental or clinical
0: context. Yeah. I was thinking of Walter White. He fakes a fugue state in Breaking Bad, which isn't a real fugue state, but it sort of gets into, like, I think he fakes it, and then he admits to the doctor afterwards, after he verifies uh, kind of a confidentiality kind of piece, that he says, yeah, I kind of made this all up, and that's kind of interesting. Oh,
1: I I had forgotten about that. It's
0: very early in season one.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Well, that's
0: interesting. Yeah. I, was, I don't remember. That was a great show. But I don't remember yes, this. Time for us all to rewatch
1: it. Exactly. <laughs> it really is. Well, everything that you talked about is just so interesting and so informative. One thing that we like to do with our guests before we wrap up is find out what you like to nerd out to personally, besides this awesome science y stuff.
2: Oh, man. Um, I guess, yeah. I... My wife and I like a lot of tv um so um
1: you're talking to the right people for that <laughs> that's
2: good <laughs> i'm really excited for um the good place to come back i don't know if you've seen that i haven't no i
1: haven't but everyone everyone a lot of people yeah. say it's very good yeah. <laughs> it seems like um, oh
2: yeah it's it's super good it gets a uh, yeah i won't spoil it so we don't have to talk about it now, but okay, <laughs> next time
1: we'll next check time. into that. Yeah. Yep.
2: Um, yeah. I mean, there's been, I guess the shows haven't really started back. So we've been, we watched Jack Ryan, which, you know, it was good.
0: Yeah.
2: Now we're rewatching Brooklyn nine, nine. Oh, so funny. It's good. I, I don't know if y'all remember, there's one episode that they did an interrogation. The whole episode was an interrogation. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't remember that. And it was it was so good. At one point, uh, the guy they're interrogating is a dentist. Um, and somehow it gets brought up about, like, you know, the guy interrogating them says, you know, you're not a real doctor, you're a dentist. And the dentist says, you know, I'm a, I'm a real doctor. I'm not, like, one of those, you know, sociologists or whatever. And <laughs> the, uh, the captain who's married to, I guess, a guy with a PhD just goes off on this, amazing rant about how PhD literally stands for its literal doctorate and doctor stole it. It was just great. It was real (laughs) from the point of view of someone, you know, with a PhD who's, you know, not a real doctor.
1: (laughs) Very relatable. That's awesome. That's great. And, um, I think you mentioned when we were chatting before the show, you're a star Wars fan too.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
1: Which is who is your favorite Star Wars character?
2: Oh, who, yeah, that's a that's a really hard question. <laughs> but I, I would have to go with Obi Wan.
0: Oh, classic.
2: Me mm-hmm. too. Maybe it's typical, but he's just like the perfect Jedi. Yeah, he's so good. <laughs> he's yeah, so he's- good. I would really love a movie. I, I, and maybe one of the only great things about the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for nailing that character in what otherwise was a really difficult situation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if if you ever have time for a little extra reading, there is a pretty cool Obi-Wan novel about his time when he first gets to Tatooine and he's looking over Luke and he's kind of given up the Jedi way, but he gets pulled into it because of this like turf war between gangs and it's pretty cool and it's not it's a pretty quick read if you're ever looking for a little more Obi-Wan content. Well, that's good to know. I'll take that under advisement. Sounds good.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I have learned a ton. I'm excited mm-hmm. to share this with our listeners. And I just thank you for doing such great work in this important area and sharing it with us today.
0: Oh, yeah, no problem.
2: I'm really, uh, really excited to get the chance to share. I hope, hope this is helpful. I mean, you know, pretty much everything I said is somebody else's work. So <laughs> I'm glad they did that work, um, and yeah, I'm really uh, I'm dreading in anticipation for for tomorrow. I think which is which mm-hmm. is the, gonna gonna have that panel. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I can guess some of the answers or some of the questions they're gonna be they're gonna be asking. And it just seems that's really sad to, that this is gonna be how they do it um, in terms of you know. I, I assume she's gonna ask things like. Yeah, you know, did she know Kavanaugh before the incident? And if so, how well did she know him? That's something I don't think a lot of people have brought up in terms of memory. Um, a lot of that eyewitness stuff kind of, kind of goes out the window when it's somebody that you know. <laughs> um, right? If somebody you've met a bunch of times robs you, even if 35 years go by, you're going to probably be able to recognize them. <laughs> right. Um, and then I'm sure they'll probably get into thera- the therapy thing, too. Um so my guess is they'll ask what the conditions were in the therapy context when she disclosed the event. So, you know, was there hypnosis or you know visualization techniques, or did the therapist suggest anything? Because those are all those are all relevant, related questions that I don't think a prosecutor in that context should should be asking. That those should be questions that are asked in the context of an investigation so sorry to slip back into this but
1: no that's that's a great point i i was wondering about that so i mean you you said this before it's the interest in the questions right is the in this context is really difficult when talking about a very painful situation because the agenda for example of asking about hypnosis might be to Um, Reduce the credibility of the report versus, you know, trying to reach truth. I mean, they're related, but uh, The way that it's framed and conducted is certainly going to be influenced by the circumstances that that called for this in the first place
2: Yeah, and I've already seen some people Sneaking at that question on Twitter that you know may not have the best intentions uh, or the right motivations so so I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. And that's another example of kind of like grasping at the false memory literature and pulling whatever might be helpful for you. Um, and it's not that questions like that shouldn't be asked. It's just that right, this is not the right way to go about it at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's just a weird, I don't know. I find the whole thing, it's weird how this is being adjudicated. Um, you know, in criminal cases, you've got reasonable doubt, right? If he was actually in trial, reasonable doubt would be the standard for evidence. Um, you know, if there's a civil case, maybe she sued him for, for emotional damages, be something like clear and convincing evidence or preponderance of the evidence, which is just, they're just lower standards of evidence for knowing what's true. Um, this is a confirmation here. I don't know what the standard of evidence should be, uh, given that it's a bunch of senators who are deciding whether he should get this job or not. Uh, it's it's just, just a really strange uh, situation when people try to make legal parallels to this confirmation hearing. It's like, well, you know, if it was a trial, there would be a judge and a jury and there would have been an investigation in which people would have asked these questions ahead of time and interviewed them and done all that stuff. So it's strange to see this turn into or have people kind of try to turn this into uh, legal proceeding uh, when it when it really isn't. Uh, there's a pretty good article in I think The Atlantic by Benjamin Wittes, uh, who's editor in chief of Lawfare. Um, he has a pretty good podcast if
1: you, want,
2: if you want another podcast of the probably many that you listen to, um, where he talks about kind of the burden of proof and how that relates to. The Ford allegation, and this was written before the other allegations came out, and so it's only more true now. And I think I think that's a pretty good, uh, at least a pretty good discussion of these kind of issues of what is the burden of proof, what are the standards of evidence for something like this in which it's not really a legal proceeding. Um, and Wittes is a Republican. Wittes vouched for Kavanaugh's character, actually, before all this stuff came out. I don't know if he's regretting that at this point or not, but um, so he's certainly not not biased in the way that most people might think. someone would be would be biased in writing this article. So that that would be. An, I, I found that to be a pretty useful, interesting read that you can you know, either agree or disagree with.
1: Thank you. We'll we'll link to that. I haven't listened to his podcast, but I heard him interviewed on Stay Tuned with Preet Bharara a while ago, and. Uh, He certainly seems like he tries to, he's very thoughtful in how he puts the pieces together. And like you said, he, um, it seems like he tries to, as much as he can, he has his own biases or opinions. But he tries to kind of, I think, do thorough investigations of topics. So we'll link to that. That's a great suggestion. You know, I had read, I don't know if you saw this, but Anita Hill did an op-ed for the New York Times And one of the things she was talking about is how kind of how odd the procedures are. Like you said, it's an unusual circumstance. And that, that, that system isn't in place since when she testified, which was in what? 91 was it? Yeah. 1991. And so, you know, that's, you're right. It's not a typical situation. So people are kind of trying to understandably apply to you know, judicial th- or other types of things, but this is, I've heard people compare it more akin to like a job interview versus a court, but obviously it's a big job interview, so.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think it, it is a complicated thing to think about. Um, so it, it deserves respect in terms of how complicated this is. But I also think, you know, when I when I see things like, oh, well, you're ruining his life if you don't confirm him uh, you know, he's got a permanent appointment in the circuit of appeals. Um, I wouldn't call that a life-ruining experience, at least. Um, mm-hmm. So especially when there's, you know, hundreds of other judges that are qualified for the Supreme Court. And I mean, I'd argue more than hundreds, really. I'm sure a lot of people would laugh at me for that. But base rates. <laughs> um, and plenty of Republican candidates that, that might not have these issues. Uh, Gorsuch, didn't have any of these issues. And he kind of skated right through with major all the Republicans and some Democrats voting for him. So it's interesting to see this kind of turning into a kind of a stand for, for Republicans and maybe it would be easier to go with somebody else. Um, that might not have so many problems that, you know, every day there's something new that we have to have to learn about this.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. Well, well, thank you, and I'm glad we got to return to some more of your thoughts on this. And we'll...
2: sorry, I, I no, no,
1: no. I it's really interesting. I mean, this is obviously on a lot of people's minds, and I'm I'm happy to talk with someone who has memory expertise and and also just uh, compassion for the situation of of the the gravity of this case. So, thank you so much, Jonathan.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, y'all have your work. Cut out for you, the clinicians of the world. <laughs> this is—I mean—this is a rough time for a lot of people um, mm-hmm. digging digging these things back up. Um, not necessarily in the repression sense, but in the sense of having to relive. Fun time. Need mental health professionals <laughs> at times like these. So it's really great to have people like you that do that because i certainly would not be able to
1: well thank you and and also for our listeners we'll link to some mental health resources Mm -hmm. uh, about about sexual assault in our show notes well thank you so much and uh until next time yeah take care listeners and take care john
0: Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.